This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveller, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, my peers, and welcome to this week's episode of the Peers Project Podcast. I'm incredibly excited for the conversation I had with today's guest all about leading an unconventional life. You know, we're all born with a survival mentality. From an evolutionary perspective, we're wired to seek out the things that bring us the most safety and comfort. So it's only logical that as we grow, we seek validation in the status quo and most of us diligently follow the career and lifestyle paths that others have set before us. But here's the thing, my peers. In order to achieve true success and fulfillment, we have to be willing to pursue unusual paths. And today's guest is absolutely no stranger to exploring unfamiliar territory. A serial entrepreneur and tech whiz originally from the US, today's guest, my peers, has led quite the unconventional life. From going to Harvard at just 16 years old to undertaking a law degree at Heimberg University in Germany, this millennial entrepreneur has never been afraid to seek autonomy and pave his own path. So, Who exactly am I talking about? Well, today's guest is the brilliant Paul Powers. Paul is the CEO of Fizna, a company that uses 3D model search and comparison software to improve quality control. Earlier this year, he was listed on the 2019 Forbes 30 under 30 list and has received numerous features across different publications in Germany and the US over the years. What I love about Paul and his story, my peers, is how he isn't afraid to just be different. You know, he constantly challenges the status quo and pursues the unusual. And in today's episode, Paul challenges the excuses we all make that stop us from taking the leap and empowers us all to rise above the rest of the pack. So without further ado, my peers, here is my conversation with the brilliant Paul Powers. Paul, welcome to the Peers Project. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you for having me. Of course. So, you know, you and I connected on LinkedIn um, when I was searching for Forbes 30 under 30 nominees um, from across the world and different parts of the globe and you popped up and I checked out your profile and what you're doing in the tech space and I absolutely was so intrigued and I I knew I had to have you come on the show. So, I really appreciate you, um, your willingness to come on. Come on. 
Well, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Cool. So before we dive into your work, I want to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? That's a great question. I, it's, uh, I think it's very interesting. I, I mean, well, it's my life, but <laughs> um, I grew up on the western side of Cincinnati, um, and uh, you know, it wasn't like a slum or anything, but it wasn't the best place. And uh, my dad had a, an accident when he was younger, and so that uh, caused my mom to go back to work. And so our family wasn't doing super great financially for a while, which made meant that I, uh, for a number of reasons, ended up doing homeschooling um, versus going to um, either one of the not-so-great public schools at the time or the private schools, which are pretty common uh, in the Cincinnati area. Um, I think that had a big impact on my life because um, it, it definitely taught me to be more independent. I had to essentially you know, teach myself uh from the age of like a seven or so up, up until about, you know, 14 or so when I went to high school. Um, but, uh, but a year after going into high school, uh, did real well, but, um, had a lot of health issues at the time. Turned out that the school I went to had a bit of a mold issue that they didn't find uncover until a couple of years later and, uh, had a really severe allergy to it. So I thought it was a terrible asthma turned out not to really be that so much, but, um, Essentially, went back to homeschool, which I think was the best thing that ever happened because, um, you know, I was a very independent person that led to uh, different opportunities than I would have experienced. Otherwise, I got to, uh, you know, go to Harvard at 16. I got to do an exchange year in Switzerland. I got to, um, uh, you know, go learn German and uh, ended up uh, basically deciding if I was going to go to uh, MIT and pursue physics because I was always a, you know, pretty much a science guy, uh, or if I wanted to go into business. And um, I, I guess I became a little disillusioned um, with being a scientist um, in my late teens because I realized that, you know, my goal has always been to change the world for the better, you know, leave behind some kind of positive footprint. And it uh, seemed to me like nowadays you have to have a grant to do anything. And I thought I can either be a foot soldier or I can lead an army uh, in my direction. So decided to go into business and I wanted to do that in a unique way. Um, that led to me deciding to not go to MIT for physics, but instead to go to, of all places, the University of Heidelberg in Germany for law. Um, the reason I chose that was because at the time uh, I had gotten in and it was a, you know, a really, really good law school over in Germany. I think it's uh, at the time it was number one. I think it still is. And um, it, uh, at the, what I was told when I applied was they said, hey, if you pass this, you know, as far as we know, you'll be the first American, you know, or first person who grew up in America as an American citizen to come over here and pass this, this bar. So, um, uh, when I thought through it, I thought that'd give me a pretty unique, um, advantage of going into business. Cause I'd have, be able to make a lot of connections. I'd stand out. Obviously law is not too far away from business and, uh, there's a lot of insight you get from that. So that's, so in a nutshell, that's kind of my, you know, nerdy, uh, life story, uh, that kind of led to, um, me getting into business in a really awkward way. But I think that that's been uh, tremendously helpful. I think that the most helpful thing, uh, two things I would say would be one, um, the autonomy, you know, growing up completely uh, with, with just a ridiculous amount of autonomy and uh, and freedom and, and just being able to do things on my own terms, uh, for better or worse. But I think that 
Um, I flourished under that more than I would have under more structure personally. And then the other part being that the stress of German law school, it's every bit as awful as it sounds. Uh, it's not easy. It's very hard. And, um, and the stress of doing that while supporting myself and, you know, running a business and working at a law firm, it, it was very, very stressful. And, um, I think that that helped me sort of overcome the more, quote unquote, normal stresses of, you know, running a, a high tech startup, um, which is very stressful. Don't get me wrong, but it, um, sometimes I feel like it almost pills in comparison to what I had to go through in the past. So. Wow, Paul, there is so much to take in there. And I absolutely love your story. And, and when I read what you've got on your LinkedIn profile and read a bit about you, I, I mean, I was even intrigued then, and now I'm even more intrigued. So look, uh, there are so many questions that come out of that. I think I just want to take us a bit bit further back to those early days when you said your father passed away and it was just you and your mom and it's hard times. Like, Oh, no, he, sorry. He did not pass away. He had a, he, he was in an accident. Uh, he had to have a bunch of surgeries done. He's alive today. Oh, 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 thank God. <laughs> right. But he was in Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that difficult time there, you know, I want to dive into that for you and that autonomy you talked about, like having to just kind of be homeschooled and taken out of school and whatnot. So talk to us a little bit about, I guess, what that time there taught you, I, I guess, about yourself and also about the way the world works in terms of schooling versus homeschooling, that kind of thing. I guess one thing that I had going for me was I was obsessed with things that turned out to be the right thing uh, in the long run, right? Um, it would have been kind of easy to become obsessed with video games or something totally irrelevant to career. And uh, I know a lot of people who were in similar situations who um, unfortunately kind of got into those things versus into, you know, more of the academic side. Um I'm maybe just really blessed. I didn't have a lot of uh, video game systems. Maybe that's what it is. But, um, you know, I, I was very, very obsessed with my career from a very, very, very young age. I mean, I'm, as far back as I can remember, that's, uh, you know, my long-term goal by my legacy was on my mind at six. I, I was, you know, trying to see how, uh, you know, I've always thought big picture, always thought long-term, always thought about, you know, leaving something big behind. I, I was very, uh, I mean, it was a, huge um fan of the history channel back when it was actually about history <laughs> you know they had all these documentaries of all these people who did these amazing things and i would watch them and think you know how uh, i'm so lucky to be uh living in a time where basically we have such a so much better of a quality of life um because of great people in the past who really worked hard and sacrificed a lot to get us to where we are now it almost seemed to me like it would be selfish not to carry on that torch and try to do something, um, you know, equally as impactful if I can, or at least as much as I'm capable of doing. So um, I think that that was helpful, just having that mindset early on, um, you know, for however that turned out to be the case. Uh, it, it definitely impacted um, my career just because I was always, when, when left on my own devices, I was think, figuring out ways to, you know, go to college earlier, to get degrees uh, earlier, to do, <laughs> to do things uh, earlier. And, uh, and I really didn't, I got so used to the autonomy that, you know, and, until I worked at the law firm, which I did primarily just because of the contacts I got out of it, I had actually never had a job. I had always started my own companies. I had my own company at 16. I was tutoring people. I uh, had a translation company and a, a technology company. I mean, I did all these things basically uh, to support myself because I just didn't like the idea of having to work for somebody else. It kind of went against my, my theory. And what I really liked about 
law school in Germany uh, later on. And I think the reason that I was able to pass it and do well there was because um, they gave, they give you, it's a very different system than the United, I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the United States, um, it, it feels very much like they're, you know, controlling every aspect of your life. They've got all these clubs and, you know, you're, uh, there's all this school spirit and in Germany, it's really just, they don't care if you go to class, at least they don't for law school. Um, they just care if you pass the exam, um, how you get there is totally irrelevant. They're not going to do much to support you. Uh, I love that. You know, I'm sure a lot of people would hate it, but for me, that was perfect. And um, I think when you're an entrepreneur, you have to be a self-starter. And um, I'm not sure that if I didn't have that experience growing up and didn't have that, um, you know, that upbringing, that it would be as natural for me to, you know, start a business and do all the hard work that it takes to do that and wake up early every morning and stay up late every night without anybody telling me to or anyone, uh, you know, I don't get paid extra for doing extra work. I just, I do it because I have a long-term view in mind. I think that, you know, sometimes that, um, sometimes certain, I guess, attributes, um, of us later in life, they really do get formed early on. And, uh, it doesn't mean you can't change later in life, but certainly it's helpful when, you know, your early life experiences lend themselves to that. I love it. Everything you're saying is just just taking it all in, and it's just so true. How it is so much so formed when in our childhood and when you know when we're very young, and and that can really impact. And that's why I ask those question questions about those early years. So you mentioned that you somehow at the age of six, like you were from such a young age, you were so determined and driven to actually go out there and leave that legacy. Where do you think that comes from for you? I, I don't know. Uh, honestly, I don't remember a time when it wasn't like that. Some of my earliest memories. And if you ask my friends who knew me uh, the longest, the first memories they have of me is trying to, it was like pinky in the brain. I was always trying to figure out how to take over the world. Uh, I mean, that was when I was a little kid, that was my thing. I'm going to somehow take over this, 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 this globe. I mean, not that that's my goal now, but when I was a kid, I was, uh, that's just always my way of thinking. I don't know why I don't, I must've been, maybe it was uh, something genetic, but it's probably an experience. I just mm. can't remember. Fair know. enough. Fair enough. It's in your blood. It's in your blood. Um, okay. I love that. Okay. So talk to me. <laughs> something that really fascinates me about your story is that transition there from the US to Germany and then obviously into that highly prestigious, you know, law university over in Germany. Talk to us a bit about that transition there from the States to Germany at such a young age um, and, and how you handle that. So I, um, I wanted to get out of the country. I mean, one, one thing that's a downside to being homeschooled is you don't get out much, right? So um, when I uh, got to go to Harvard, it was my first time really being away from home at all. And I really loved it. You know, it kind of lent itself more to even more autonomy. And then I thought, okay, well, I, uh, how about actually getting out of the country? And so um, it's uh, ironically enough, I did an exchange year, not into college, but into high school because it was the only way I could do it. So left Harvard <laughs> High School in Switzerland. And uh and finished high school over there. And just because of the timing of that, I was able to basically pick, you know, well, do I finish off high school in Europe um, or do I go back to the United States and um, go to college there? And so um, what and, and it, it, the reason I put, chose Germany, frankly, between, between Germany and Switzerland is at the time Switzerland was just so ridiculously expensive. And uh, I was having to 
you know, do everything I could to <laughs> survive off of very little over there. Uh, Germany was much more affordable. Um, turns out, in retrospect, Germany's bar is uh, amongst at least the German-speaking countries by far the hardest. Uh, it would have been a lot easier if I had somehow managed to stay in Switzerland or go to Austria, even. Or I don't know if Liechtenstein has a bar, but go there <laughs> or England or somewhere else. But uh, but I ended up choosing that path. Uh, I thought Switzerland was a really cool country. Learned German. It's a very different type of German than regular German, but. Um, so I almost feel like I had to relearn it. Um, and it was really just, I wanted to have, I, I think that to do unusual things, you have to take unusual paths. And, um, you know, if, if, I think it's very important that, you know, when you have a, when you have big goals, um, you can't look at what paths are available to me to attain them, because if it was that simple, everybody would be doing it. So you have to think, okay, start at the goal and work your way back and say, well, if that's where I want to be in 20 years, what do I have to do to, you know, where do I have to be in 15? Where do I have to be in 10, five, four, three, two, one. And then what do I need to do now? Uh, if you walk yourself back that way, you'll see that there are a lot of different paths open, you know, it starts to really open up your imagination. And, um, and it was talking to a lot of people who, um, who could see that the same way. And uh, in fact, it was, uh, when I was, um, going to go to MIT, the uh, admissions advisor that I was talking to, he actually said, why would you go? I mean, I mean, this, I'm not saying that everyone felt this way, but certainly he did. He helped convince me. He said, why would you go here when you can go do something totally unique like that? And um, that just kind of sealed the deal mm. for me. And I did it that way. I love it. And I completely agree. I think that literally that quote that I'm calling it a quote because it is a quote. I already know it's going to be a quote from your episode. Um, if you want to do unusual, if you want to be unusual, you want to do unusual things, something like that, whatever you said was so spot on and I couldn't agree more. You know, if you want to be different, you have to do, take, you have to pave your own path. And the fact that you, you know, the fact that you mentioned that there's no path, the path isn't just laid out in front of you. You have to like make it. It's like rings so true to me. So I love that you touched on that. I want to speak a bit about um, the cultural differences. So obviously I've also done quite a bit of studies overseas and whatnot, travel, you know, obviously there are, there are you know, very different cultural differences between the States and, and Europe in general. Did you ever struggle in that way because it was different or did you just kind of easily adapt? Talk to us a bit about that. Uh, I, I think one thing I had going for me, I was able to pick up the language pretty efficiently because I went there at 16. I think that if it had just been a couple years later, it would have been, um, from a developmental perspective, probably harder to learn the language, probably harder to adapt to the culture. Um, and I lived there for 10 years. I mean, I lived there from 16 to 26. Um, so, it, it, I mean, it was always a little weird because I always felt like I was sort of in the middle. Like I always said, I, if I'm a citizen of anything, it's Greenland or something, something in the middle between Germany and America, because I didn't really feel like 100 percent either one. Um, definitely when I came back to the United States, um, it was a little bit more ironically enough. I mean, when I first showed up in Europe, it was a, it was a culture shock for sure. I mean, just the, um, it was very different for me. But, you know, I was young enough to where I was fairly impressionable, I guess. And, um, I think the years that really solidify your personality are between, you know, probably mid teens to mid twenties. And, and that's exactly the period that I was gone. So coming back, uh, was, I can't say it was a culture shock cause I grew up here. It's not like I was confused by things, but, um, I had to readjust my way of thinking in a lot of ways, especially when we were, uh, hiring employees and, you know, the differences in dress code, the differences in expectations of, uh, 
I was really, uh, this sounds stupid, but uh, when I first came back, I was dumbfounded by the fact that people were asking me about healthcare. I was like, why are you asking me about your health insurance? That's not my problem. That's the government does that. They're like, no, it doesn't. <laughs> so, I mean, I, 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 mean, I, I kind of, it's, I, I, I kind of knew it, but I didn't really think about it. And it's just kind of never crossed my mind. To, the, and obviously we do have health insurance for our employees, but it took me a while to understand that was necessary and how much more, um, support you have to give to employees here you know they uh, you can't give them complete autonomy not well, you, not that they can't handle it it's just that that's not the culture they grew up in um they expect a little bit more guidance um again not all i'm generalizing but that, that took a while to get mm. used to for sure i love that and i think there are such differences even when you were talking about um you know your experience at university in germany where it was so much autonomy and you know in the u.s it's different it's so funny because in Australia, it's more similar to Germany. It's just kind of you go to uni, if you rock up, you rock up. If you go to class, you go to class. But no one's kind of spoon feeding you. And I think it allows you to grow up a lot quicker and, and to kind of experience things that, things that you otherwise wouldn't have. So I find that super interesting there. So I want to dive into a bit more about your entrepreneurial journey throughout all of this. So obviously, you know, you're super academic, you're doing super well in school, you're in Harvard at 16, and you're going to Germany to study law and, you know, all of this good stuff. But talk to us a little bit about how entrepreneurship played a role throughout all of this. I think um, entrepreneurship has been the underlying theme for all of it. Uh, you know, I mean, not that uh, I don't want that to come across wrong, but, but I, you know, it's being autonomous and being a self-starter, uh, whether it's academic or entrepreneurial, I think it's the same mentality. And um, as, as I mentioned, you know, for the vast majority of my life, I was never employed by anybody um, because I've I had that. I was, I mean, frankly, I think I wouldn't have been the greatest employee. I think I, I needed to be autonomous. I was so used to it. Um, I, I, frankly, not a huge fan of that much structure. Yeah. yeah um, so it worked out better for me to run my own companies and it's stressful, but it was also very, it's freeing in a way, you know, it's, it, uh, it's very gratifying to me to accomplish something on my own. Um, how I got to where I am now from Germany, um, uh, is really, I guess, the, really the highlight of the entrepreneurial side. I don't think it's worth talking about, you know, the smaller companies when I was essentially a kid. But, um, you know, I, I started a company called Zuzler, which works on uh, start helps other startups get started, essentially. And um, from that, we bore uh, this company, Fizna, which is what I got the Forbes 30 under 30 thing for. And that's also the you know, the main thing now. It's um, so Fizna is. Um, and I, I had the idea for it in law school or shortly after law school. And my, my uh, dissertation was on intellectual property and what the future of it is. And I, the, it was blatantly obvious to anybody who focuses in that area of law that we're kind of in a bad situation where, um, you know, the cost of pursuing somebody, you know, like a patent litigation suit or whatever is going up and up and up and up. Um, but you've got this uh, sort of demo democratization of manufacturing, uh, 3D printing is just one element of that. So everybody can make whatever now, and it's not really worth it to sue anybody. And that doesn't sound like a big problem until you think about it from a more macroeconomic perspective and realize, well, if nobody's going to want to do research and development, uh, and uh, there's not going to be as much innovation, people aren't going to buy as much. And it just becomes this kind of race to the bottom. And so the only way to address it instead of um, reactively is uh, preventatively. So um, in other words, law can't handle it, technology has to. Well, the problem we ran into 
Um, we've got that for everything. For I mean, if you steal somebody's music on YouTube, YouTube can find it. If you um, steal somebody's logo, they'll be able to find it. Certainly with text, that's extremely easy. Plagiarism prevention there. But when it comes to 3D models, the, um, you know, we live in a 3D world, but our computers think in 2D. And they there's no universal 3D language, or at least there wasn't. And um, so trying to solve that problem, we ran into this prop, this issue where every single technology we tried, literally, I think everything on the market, um, wasn't able to identify if someone was stealing somebody's you know intellectual property, their, their physical designs for something. And that's how FISNA got started. So FISNA sort for physical DNA. And in a nutshell, what we did was we taught computers to think in 3D, so to speak. We normalized that data. We said, I don't care what file you've got. I don't care where it comes from. I don't care how you saved it. We're going to break that down into code, um, this proprietary, internationally patent-pending complex code with AI and all this fancy stuff. It took forever to develop, but eventually we were able to get it down to where we can show you differences between the models, search between them. We've got autofill for engineers. Engineers, um, we're saving engineering company uh, companies with engineers an average of almost forty thousand dollars per year per user, just because they don't have the tools that um, we're used to having. On, I mean, you've got more tools on your cell phone than they do on their gigantic supercomputers. That uh, where they're spending fifty to sixty, hundred thousand dollars, whatever a year on that software, it's less powerful um, as far as data organization is concerned as uh, than your Facebook profile is. So we're basically just trying to bring the same tools that we're used to using in um, our private lives, like search and autofill and all those fun things um, into the, um, into the 3d world, which as I mentioned, works great for engineers and manufacturers, but it also has uh, long-term applications for things like healthcare that it, um, being able to detect tumors automatically much more accurately than you can do with 2D AI, um, with automation of quality control, um, inspection automation. Um, a lot of what we do, uh, I would say most of what we do actually has not only economic implications, saving money and time, but it also uh, in many cases saves lives uh, because we're identifying and preventing very serious flaws in aviation and um, in other industries as well. So that's essentially, I mean, if, if that rambling made sense, <laughs> that's kind of how it went from IP law into this technology area. Yeah. No, I love it. And I'm just taking all of that in, there's so much to take, so much goodness. Um, okay. So it's so it's so interesting, though, just, just on that point there about what you do. Because when I was looking into you and what you do, I was confused about how you went from like a law background and performing so highly at your law firm in, in Germany or, sorry, in Switzerland to, you know, to, to kind of helping engineers and in the manufacturing side and the whole technology side of things. And that just blew my mind. And so it, it makes a lot more sense now that you've kind of pieced it together. Um, okay, wow. So a question that does come from that is is really around, I want to kind of dive into that transition to doing um your company. So to actually taking this on full time. So I, uh, what I read was, you know, you're at, and you kind of mentioned earlier, you're at law school, you're at law school, you went into a law firm, you were still running your company and you're working crazy um, hours in the legal industry um, when you were still overseas. You know, how did you juggle all of that? You mentioned that being so stressful that, you know, you had to either kind of take the leap and go, go off and do one or the other. Talk to us a little bit about that decision there and that stressful time that you went through. 
Well, I took uh, so there you can't juggle that many things. This is the truth of it. You can't. Uh, so that became evident to me, um, sort of at the apex of this stress. Um, this is before Fizna, but after I started, you know, another company, I, I was running at the time three companies. Wow. Uh, Finishing the law degree, my law degree and working at the law firm full time. I was sleeping two and a half hours a night for weeks in a row. And what ended up happening was, I'll never forget, I was walking to, it was randomly after work one day, I was walking to get my hair cut and I thought I was having a heart attack. I had this weird palpitation um, and uh, went to the hospital and, and that month went to the hospital six more times. Um, uh, felt like I was on a tour of Germany's hospitals because whatever I was traveling to, I went to their hospital there and all kinds of EKGs and everything. And they kept saying, your heart's fine, your heart's fine, your heart's fine. Um, I went back to America. I went to my doctor here and um, I just gave him all the German test results, which he said were extremely thorough. He's like, you don't have a heart problem. And eventually after God knows how many visits, uh, we eventually got to the, the, uh, the problem being if you don't sleep for a long time and you keep that many hours and you're under that much stress, eventually your serotonin level in your brain just goes uh, it's kind of like an oil can that just keeps depleting without being filled back up um that causes uh panic attacks palpitations and it's kind of a vicious cycle so the palpitations scare you so you have more panic attacks you can't sleep and um and eventually i realized you know this isn't healthy this is going to kill me even those mid early 20s and um and i decided that you know the only way to uh, to handle that was, um, you know, after the bar exam was over and I was working at the law firm, I kind of eventually one day said, okay, this is stupid. Um, I never wanted to be a lawyer. I, I did this for the degree. I did this for the exposure. I have plenty of connections. I have um, got all the experience that I needed out of this. Um, I don't need to keep making the money. I need to just take the leap. And um, I decided, you know, really to start something like FISNA, you know, something that's going to be that high tech and that capital intensive. Starting it in Germany would be very difficult because German tax law is complicated. Um, it, there's just a, a million reasons why it's, I'm not saying it's bad. It's not at all bad to start a company in Germany. It's, it's just for that type of company, that kind of very high tech company, it, to me, made more sense to move back to the States and do that here. Um, so I left that and uh, definitely didn't do it for the money because I've, I've like, I, I always joke that I make more money, uh, less, sorry, I make less money now than I made when I was, you know, like five, 10 years ago. I've never made, you know, since, I mean, more as a law student than I make now. <laughs> and uh, not many people can say that. I think I'm the only person in Forbes 30 under 30 who's like, yeah, I, when I was a student, I was really rolling in it. And now I'm totally... <laughs> um, so I didn't do it for that, but uh, you know, you again, it's the long term. You're in it for the long term, and um, and I'm never, I never have ever looked back and said, I wonder if that was the right choice. I've never regretted it. Um, it's always been very clear to me that this is exactly what I need to, mm. need to be doing. I love how it has always been so clear. I think that so many people, so many millennials, you know, so many of us want to go out there. We're ambitious. We want to go out there and do our own things, but there's something holding us back. You know, we're either in these corporate careers or whatever it may be, these high powered jobs. And it's, it's, it really is the questions that I always get asked is how did you take the leap? You know, how did you actually gain the courage to go, you know what, this is right. And, and let's not look back. Do you have any tips for us? You know, what would you say to you know a young entrepreneur out there who's who's caught up in a corporate job but really wants to go out there and pursue their passion pursue their business but just can't find it within them to take the leap what advice would you give i would ask them how many people they can name out of history and 
if they were a history major and they knew and they had really good memory, maybe they can remember 10,000, which is 1% of 1% of 1% of 1% of all the people who ever lived. Um, not saying that other people didn't contribute, but it's very easy to fall into obscurity. And um, if that's not powerful enough, if, if you're not worried about obscurity, um, just think about, I mean, to me, there's nothing more scary than lying on my deathbed at whatever age that is, hopefully an old age, um, and having regrets. And I've never met an entrepreneur who said, oh, I really regret following my dreams. I've met many people who regret not following them. Um, I, I can tell you now that you will have a really, really hard time taking that leap. But I'll tell you that in the long run, you'll regret it if you don't. And if you do, no matter what happens, even if you land in bankruptcy, even if the worst happens, you won't regret it in the long run. You just won't. And typically, it's not hard. I mean, if you've got a run-of-the-mill job, it's run-of-the-mill because you can go get another one. Um, especially in today's economy, we've got very low unemployment. There's really no reason why you shouldn't pursue your dreams at this point. I mean, no one's holding you back. You're holding yourself back. And I think that's what people have to uh, accept. It's if you don't take that jump, no matter your situation, it's you don't, you've got at the end of the day, no one to blame, but yourself. Um, everyone's got a very hard story. Everyone's in a really tough position. Um, some, some more than others, but you know, I, I think a lot of, not just every generation um, suffers from a disease that, I mean, I guess you'd call it excusitis, right? Where you're, you've always got this external fulcrum where the, the outside world is responsible for you not being where you want to be. Um, and the truth is, even if there's some truth to that, you can't influence you know, random events and what the outside world is going to do to you. You can only influence what you'll do. Um, so to, you know, to look at your life and say, well, I would take this jump, but I've got this going on or I've got that going on, I, I think is an excuse for uh, creative laziness. Um, you have to, I think, accept that if you really, really thought about it and were creative, no matter how hard your situation is, you'd be able to figure out a way to say, okay, no matter how in debt you are, no matter what medical issue you have, no matter what social economic issue you're under, I think that there is always a way if you're creative enough and determined enough to find your way out of it. So well said. Oh my goodness. I loved every second of that. Um, okay. Awesome. So I just want to touch on before we, you know, start to, um, dive more into kind of your your business and what you're doing now i just want to touch on that idea of what you you talked about you know that the fact that you were you know so much richer as a college student you know on your in your law firm working than you are now you know this idea of pursuing your passion, following your dream, and you know, it not always working out exactly as you envisaged it, and all of that, and you know, how do we gain the courage, or you know, to stick at it, to, to stay in the game, to you know, once we've taken that leap, we're like, great, we're here now, you know, but I'm really, I'm not seeing the dollars roll in, or I'm not, you know, it's not going as I planned, you know, how do we get ourselves in the right headspace to go? It's all right, we're doing it for the long-term vision. You know, I wish that I had some kind of super inspiring quote that I would honestly believe that would uh, answer that question. The, the truth is, it, 
part of what you have to do is get a good support group around you. Because if, if I were to tell you, I never freak out, I never worry, I never panic about what's going on, I'd be totally lying. I mean, it, it's scary. It's it's an emotional roller coaster. Every day you go from thinking, I am uh, barely worth uh, the air that I breathe, and to thinking, I'm basically the best thing to ever happen to humanity. And, and then the next day, and every day, you go back and forth between those extremes. I might be exaggerating just a little bit, but that's pretty much how it is. And over time, you get used to it and um, you don't, I don't know how to put it. It doesn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it becomes easy, but you get used to that emotional mindset. The emotions start to become a little bit less intense. You start to realize, hey, I've gone through worse than this before. It'll be all right. Um, you start to look at opportunities for what they are and also uh, risks for what they are. You just become a little more honest with yourself about what's in front of you. And um, and you gain security through that. And frankly, the only way to get pat- is to, to get over um that fear and to get over that panic is to go through it. You, know, you can't go around it. Um, and it's very helpful if you have people on your side who will support you. And that won't always be the people you think it will be. Yeah, you know, it, it, a lot of people think, well, my friends and family will be there for me for that. I, I think I'm lucky in the, in the sense that uh, in my case, I feel like some definitely most have been supportive, but I definitely know that you know, not everybody, um, in fact, most people, sometimes it's the people who are closest to you who will say, don't do that. Uh, if you think about it, being an entrepreneur means that there's almost something wrong with your brain. Because from, seriously, because fr- from an evolutionary perspective, we're built for survival, right? We're built to have food, shelter, and, uh, and, and survive. Being an entrepreneur is almost the exact opposite of that. It's saying, yeah, I'm going to leave all that food and shelter behind. I'm going to go run off into the tundra because I think I'm going to find a much better hut somewhere. And that's stupid. And I'm I'm surprised that, I mean, you almost would have thought people who are more entrepreneurial died out. I'm sure a lot of them did, but uh, in today's, (laughs) in today's world, you know, survival, I don't want to say it's a given, but it's, we don't, we're not going to get eaten by, um, a saber-toothed tiger or stomped on by woolly mammoth these days, right? So, I mean, in most cases, the those risks have, at a minimum, diminished quite significantly. So, it's not really survival as much as it is the pursuit of thrival, if you will. And um, you have to just change your mindset from, I'm trying to make it to tomorrow, to I'm trying to make it to this goal. Um, and if you can change your mindset like that, again, I, I, I honestly do believe that that's not a natural way to think and that... Um, it's it's much more understandable when people pursue the um, safety, um, but you have to you have to uh, basically be willing to make that leap and leave behind your um, your instincts, which is I think the hardest thing to do is to get over those instincts. And um, and the reason that your family and your closest friends sometimes will not be there to support you is because their instincts because as someone who loves you is saying, uh, keep this person safe, keep this person protected. Don't let them go run off into the tundra looking for that better hut. They've got a hut. They've got food here. Let them have it. Don't, don't let them go run off and be an idiot and kill themselves. Right. So that's their, that's their gut instinct. You can't hold that against them, but keep in mind that that, um, that advice is very rarely in, you know, today's world, um, the right advice anymore. So spot on. So spot on. So many awesome analogies. Um, 
Okay, great. So you talked about the fact that we need to be surrounding ourselves with amazing people who get it and they may not often, you know, be our friends and family. How do we find our tribe? You know, what, you know, what advice do you have on that? You know, how did you do it? I mean, it's an ongoing process. I, I wouldn't say that I, you know, found some kind of click or tribe. Uh, you know, f- to be honest with you, sometimes being an entrepreneur can be quite lonely. Uh, it's they say it's lonely at the top, and it is. Um, you know, a, a good uh, if you like analogies, then I'll say you know, uh, you know, ducks and geese flock, but eagles don't, right? And, uh, and and so it's really hard sometimes when you're trying to soar above the rest to be in some flock. You, you can't. You have to find the that lone pigeon, <laughs> whatever. Uh, you know, there's individual um, people out there who will support you because they've been there, done that. Um, and it, it's yeah. there's not really a tribe. Uh, I mean, if you find a, a group that's that can help you in that way, that's wonderful. Uh, for me, it's been more individuals that I've met over the years. And when you find people who are supporting you in the right way, um, you need to acknowledge them for what they are, uh, see the value in them, and to embrace that and realize that that's an amazing asset. Um, you don't run by these people very often, which is why you're not going to just stumble into a group of them normally. Um, and... Um, you know, you need to slowly build your own tribe, essentially. I think that's the only way that you can do it. Um, it doesn't need to be a big one. It can be one person. It can be, it can be 10, but um, some degree of social support is important. And even if you don't find somebody who is super successful and inspirational to you, which I think is important that you do, but if you, even if you don't, you don't at least need to find people who are willing to say, okay, I will support what you're doing. I will uh, I think what you're doing is good. If that's what you want to do with your life, I'm fully behind you. And mm. at a minimum, you need that, I think. I couldn't agree more. I think you, yeah, you nailed it with that too. Um, okay. So if we're trying to navigate this world of entrepreneurship, we've we've dived in and we're trying to find those key people and bring together those that support system, you know, how do we how do we develop that? Obviously, it, it is still very much so a solo journey, though. But how do we develop that kind of tenacity to that that kind of just consistency? Something I always get asked about, you know, that that kind of consistent work ethic, so that we can continue to go it alone, and you know, then it, you know, slowly accumulate one, two, three people who are there to support us. How do we do that? Well, I, I think you actually already answered that question before when when you asked about, you know, how do we get around mm-hmm. this fear? Uh, for better or worse, most people, even people who are long-term thinkers at a very primal level, we're motivated by what scares us. And when, when you're afraid of failing in a major, major way in the sense of bankruptcy or, you know, some kind of felt uh, social um uh, being a social outcast because mm-hmm. you're a failure, which you shouldn't. But, if, you know, those kinds of fears will will keep you disciplined, hopefully. Uh, it's easy to fall into bad uh, habits and, uh, and to um, allow the fear to rule your life. But if you can push your way through it and you get through some of those earlier steps, um, that discipline should hopefully come naturally, you know. But I think what's important is, um, as I mentioned earlier, the 
the mindset of autonomy is, is, is critical. I don't think that you can expect a structured system and uh, expect to go thrive as an entrepreneur. It's um, one of the reasons why there are some organizations, uh, there are a lot of great organizations that support entrepreneurs. There are a couple, I won't name any, but that basically try to fit everybody into this uh, path and they take them through this kind of school type program and they say, this is how you become an entrepreneur. This is the way to do it. Uh, I think that is the most counterintuitive thing ever. Uh, to be an entrepreneur, you have to be uh, autonomous. You have to be able to be a self-starter. And there's not really a way to just magically turn that faucet on. The only way to uh, train your mind to uh, and train your habits is to start. Is a start practicing being independent. Um, I'm a huge believer in, you would not believe that I'm an organized person if you look at my desk or any other place that I live for that matter, a, a total dis- chaos. But if you look at my calendar, you know, you'll see that it's totally booked full of everything uh, down to the, uh, down to don't think about this until this time. Don't do this until that time. Uh, you know, uh, my uncle once joked with me that um, he's an attorney. He said, you know, when he was in law school, he would plan when he was allowed to eat a cookie. Um, don't know that you have to take it that far, but you, but you know, you want to plan carefully having a calendar and planning out, even when you're going to worry about things, if I can give one little tip, that might be it. And the other tip I would give is, um, keep your, to stay on, to stay focused. It's really easy to get caught up in minutia, right. And become micro focused. Um, there, you need about, I hate the word balance, but you, you need both. You need to be able to um, be micro-focused and macro-focused. And you can do both if you, as I mentioned earlier, focus on the large goal down the road and then work your way back all the way from this is where I want to be when I'm dead or when I retire or whatever, all the way down to, okay, well then in the next 15 minutes, this is what I need to be doing, right? And you work that those steps in the opposite direction. And then the minutiae that you're working on now, it'll never feel um, useless. It'll never feel mundane because you know that it's part of that larger goal. Uh, that, to me, uh, combined with a little bit of organizational discipline and uh, the best way to start is just by putting things on a calendar. I, I don't know a better way to do it. I think that's the best way to start for me personally anyway. Um, if you do those two things, I think that you'll naturally fall into a rhythm of consistent hard work. And it, frankly, it, I don't think work is a great word. I, if you really view what you're doing as painful work and you hate it, um, you really need to find something else to do. You're not going to be successful in something you hate doing. You know, Sometimes I hate individual things I'm doing at any given moment, but I don't hate what I'm doing. I love what I'm doing. And um, a lot of people make fun of me because I'll, uh, they'll ask me, what are, what are you doing on Saturday and Sunday? It's like, oh, I'm in the office right now. Why? Do you have a meeting? No, I just I, I want to be here doing this work, right? I, yeah. Yeah. This is what I, I want to be doing. So couldn't agree more with that. Is there is such a difference when you genuinely want to do the work that you're doing and you're genuinely excited about it, you're passionate about it. You're like, how can we make this better? And you've got your goals in line than just going, I'm going to my job, I finish at this time, I come home. Um, and so I, I really do hope that we are making a point here for everyone listening that it is about, you know, pursuing that passion. It is about tapping into what you care about and doing that. Awesome. So I want to just spend the last couple of minutes of today's interview and session, which has been amazing, talking about your company and the work you do. So specifically, um, Fizz, uh, sorry, Fizz, Fizz now? 
Yeah. And then I also knew you were running Zoosla as well. Yeah. Um, so talk to me a bit about this. Now, obviously, we touched on it before, the 3D model search um, and comparison software used for engineers and manufacturers, mm-hmm. um, hugely improving efficiency, all of that, absolute good stuff. Talk to us a bit about where you're at with that now. You're about three and a half years in. Talk to us about, yeah, your company. Yeah, we're about three years into it. And um, the thing about FISNA is it's more than a, an app in the sense that it really is a core technology. It, it's um, it's basically a different way to compute. You're taking three-dimensional models and you're turning it into code that a computer can understand. So we're teaching it to think in 3D. And as I mentioned, there are many, many, many applications for that. But as a startup, you can't... I mean, it's uh, sometimes I use the analogy of... Think of FISNA as not to equate ourselves with Einstein, but E equals MC squared. If the comp- if your company is an equation, how on earth do you monetize that? Well, there's all kinds of things you can do with that, but you have to kind of focus, right? So we've identified, I would say, 20 plus applications for the technology, and we get approached about new ones every maybe not every week, but every month easily. Um, totally new things we've never thought of before that we didn't realize were problems. We've narrowed it down to engineering and manufacturing as our main focus right now because it's uh, it does not require some of the, more, you know, some of the things like in healthcare and, and uh, quality control, you need the hardware and it's just a little more complicated. So in those cases, we work with companies and license the technology to them so that they're able to use that. Um, I'm a, I really do hope that this technology will be able to support um, not only quality control and inspections, but also things like uh, healthcare. And, um, you know, uh, because I think that this is actually going to be able to save a lot of lives if it's applied appropriately. Am I the right person to go lead a charge in healthcare for this application? At the moment, no, because we have uh, on certain amount of funds, certain amount of people, and I can't tell our sales team, okay, here's 500 things you can go sell, right? I got to have stay focused. If you think about the evolution of a physical product, you know, uh, leaving healthcare for a moment, thinking about just physical, non-biological products, uh, it starts with innovation. And our goal with at FISNA is to allow engineers to innovate at the speed of their imagination. And right now, there are numerous studies that show that these designers, these engineers, these researchers, they're only working at 20% of their uh, potential efficiency. That has to do with the fact that they can't even find what they've already worked on in the past. They're literally redesigning stuff that they've got in their library. uh, And it, it really is like, imagine walking into a library and saying, I'm looking for a tale of two cities. And they say, oh, okay, well, I've got a gymnasium full of books with no labels on them over there. If you want to go look through there and see if you can find it, or there's a typewriter over there, you can just type the book if you want. Or see if you can find if you can't, go type it. That sounds ridiculous, but that's kind of how a lot of companies are. They're very bad at organizing these models. And the reason is that these models aren't really searchable based on the geometry. So you have to, uh, you have to know the exact way it was tagged, but then you've got supplier. It's a really complicated mess. And, um, and, and really what it boils down to is the, there are so many common sense tools that, are take, that we take for granted um, on Facebook, on Google, on Amazon, I mean, on your on your phone that don't exist at aero, uh, aerospace companies when they're working on things that are keeping people alive. Um, they're working on multi-billion dollar projects and we're all sitting in airplanes uh, having our lives depending on that, the, you know, 
the security of what they've designed. And if they don't have a product that's verifying that it's the right model, that there that no manipulations took place, et cetera, uh, they're putting people in danger. And it's mind boggling to me that the, that nobody did this earlier. I mean, I was like, I didn't come out of this industry. This is a totally, you know, when we started getting into this, this was very new for me. I was shocked. And a lot of people are shocked when they look at it and say, are you kidding me? That's actually how they, they work right now, both in engineering and manufacturing. So where we are is we've, um, last year we added over a hundred thousand users to FISNA. Um, now a, a lot of those were non-paying. We had special deals with a lot of the early users, you know, your beta testers, we, you know, work with you on some data, you give us feedback, yada, yada. Um, but we actually decided to go ahead and start commercializing, uh, towards the end of last year. Um, we've got a tremendous amount of traction at the moment, um, uh, going into, uh, a, uh, series a with a lot of uh, a lot of momentum it's moving much faster than we thought with an uh, with a couple dozen vcs right now who are looking to put mu- more money in than we want and faster than we want so we have to figure out navigate that a little bit but um and we're really we're really lucky at this point or blast or, or whatever you want to call it at this point um in our company's history because uh, all the work we've been slaving away after a couple of years is really starting to come into fruition and they get utilized in a lot of very, very, very big organizations and companies and uh, being licensed out for other applications that we don't have the manpower to pursue. So uh, I'm very excited about where FISN is going. I think we have a lot of great opportunity ahead of us. Wow. This is so exciting. And I love the way you've put it. I think it's so true how it's those early years when you're just working away, you're working on weekends, you just keep going at it. You know, it's good. You know, you've got the vision, but it's not until a little bit later that, you know, you're experiencing it now where it's, you know, you're getting awards, you're getting recognized for your work. You're getting so many users on board. It's absolutely phenomenal to see. And I think it just shows us all that, you know, if you do just stick at it, if you do just keep going, it will eventually, you know, work out. Yeah. Awesome. Paul, it's, it's absolutely awesome to see. I'm so excited to continue to, to watch your journey and, and to see where this phenomenal company, you, where you take it um, and see all of the awesome stuff that you're about to experience. Um, so as we come to the close of today's interview, I just want to acknowledge you, Paul, for the awesome work you've done and that you're doing. You know, you really are an example for all of us out there who are trying to make our dreams happen, who are, you know, who, who really believe in, in something bigger for ourselves. And I mean, you're the living proof that you can do it. So we really appreciate you for that. Thank you so much. Of course. Great. So our final question is how we finish all of our interviews here at the Peers Project. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? What is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I would answer that with a question of, is there any value in doing anything else? I love it. I love it, Paul. Thank you so much. We've had so much fun today. I really appreciate it. And where can people learn more about you and your work and your company? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, as you found me. Uh, so Paul Powers, um, uh, you can find our company FISNA, P-H-Y-S-N-A, short for physical DNA, P-H-Y-S-N-A. Um, we can find us on our website, find us on LinkedIn. And, uh, and, and I'm very, uh, I'm very open and I love to hear from people and get their feedback and, um, and talk to fellow entrepreneurs and like-minded people. So, uh, always happy uh, to talk to anybody who's interested in having a conversation. Awesome.
Perfect. We'll link them up in the show notes. Appreciate it, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.